HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number one by the Legion of Dudes. Hey guys, this is Brad. And this is Frank from A Half Hour Wasted. And we are pleased to present Who Reads the Watchmen, a spinoff of A Half Hour Wasted. Some of our listeners were talking about the Watchmen on uh, our message board. And a couple of them uh, got together and started throwing the idea around about maybe they should talk about it on Skype. And it kind of morphed into its own entity. Six of our four members uh, got together and uh, talked about issue one and uh, asked us to uh, host the recording. And we're proud to do it. And this should be a lot of fun for you. We have listened to the first episode. We think you're really going to enjoy it. Guys do an excellent job and it's only going to get better. And uh, they really go in-depth into this first issue of The Watchmen. And with the movie coming up, this is this is a perfect, just a, a perfect pairing of podcast, book, and movie. Yeah, it'll be nice to hear their take on each of the issues. And then I'm sure they'll do a movie review mm-hmm. when, you know, hopefully the movie <laughs> will... Will uh, we'll be released will, on time. Will be released, yeah. Um, myself being a self-admitted... Watchmen non-fan uh, after listening to their first recording it made me want to crack the book open again and look at it with a new set of eyes so I'm actually looking forward to doing that and to listening to the rest of their of their episodes and we hope you enjoy listening it's going to be released we're going to try to do it every two weeks and uh, these we, will be Thursday episodes these will be Thursday and uh, and you guys kick, kick back relax enjoy and uh, be sure to tell your friends if they want to know about uh, um, about Watchmen, because this will be a great, great uh, learning experience for them to get in-depth and learn about the book and learn about the characters and the subtext and uh, about this this series. And it is spoiler, by the way. Yeah, it's spoiler-filled, and uh, the guys do a really, really good job with it. And I'm, I'm proud to, to host this. And with that being said, enjoy. Banded together from remote galaxies are six of the most sinister forum members of all time. The Legion of Dudes, dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the Watchmen. Join panelists Russell Latham, John Marchiante, Adam Reed, Ken Morgan, Jim Dietz, and Adam Umack as they begin their 12-episode odyssey into the fictional realm of the end of days and attempt to answer the question, who reads The Watchmen? Listen in or interact live in real time in this page-by-page, spoiler-filled roundtable discussion and analysis of the most celebrated graphic novel of all time. Episodes are recorded bi-weekly on Skype. All are welcome to join. Check the HHW forum for recording updates. And now, the Legion of Dudes. All right. So today's discussion is Watchmen, issue one, and uh, I guess if everybody just wants to go around the table and just shout out, I'm Russell Latham. I go by Heroes Mask on the forums. Hey, uh, this is Adam Umack. I go by Melville's Fist on the forums. This is John Marchianti. Go by Johnny M on the forums. This is Jim Dietz. I go by Yoda Jones on the forums. This is Ken Morgan. I go by Logan McLeod on the forums. And this is Adam Reed, and I go by Batfan1066 on the forums. Good deal. Good deal. So, Watchmen, 
um, originally published by DC from 1986 to 1987, with Alan Moore on the writing, Dave Gibbons on the art, John Higgins on the colors. And it's, it, one thing I found interesting with the with the art on it is Gibbons is the inker as well as the letterer. Um, and I went back through and looked at a lot of Gibbons stuff, and I guess he just out of habit or just out of practice, he inks a lot of his own stuff, which I did not realize. I didn't know that either. The lettering is excellent now that you mention that. Yeah, it seems to flow real well with how the story goes. So, so in the characters, um, the, the one thing, the other thing I found interesting about this whole piece is that, you know, originally the concept was to use the Charlton characters because they hadn't really been integrated in the DC universe. And then with Crisis coming about, they decided that after Crisis they were going to migrate all those Charlton characters. So there's a lot of analogs um, to all those Charlton characters with the guys they used in Watchmen. So, you know, Moore and Gibbons ended up just kind of repurposing um, all those old Charlton characters to, to with new characters instead of just reusing the other ones because they were going to change up so much stuff. So we have, like, Dr. Manhattan is an analog to Captain Atom. Uh, Night Owl is a analog to Blue Beetle. We have Rorschach, which is the question analog. Um, Silk Spectre, um, is the Charlton Phantom Lady, Ozymandias is the Charlton Thunderbolt, and the Comedian is the cohort to the Charlton's Peacemaker um, character. Hmm. So that that was kind of interesting how everybody, you know, all the principals in this in this book all have kind of a, a counterpart in the Charlton universe that was just repurposed. So, well, it's a good thing they didn't use the Charlton characters because uh, they'd be all dead. <laughs> good point. I did not know any of that. One thing I wanted to bring up about the lettering real quick. This is the first time I think I can remember seeing in a comic where they had different style lettering and different colored boxes depending on who was narrating. It's pretty common practice now, but I, I think watching it was like the first time I really, uh, really hit me that I saw that. Absolutely. I think, I think over the course of this, we'll probably be repeating that phrase a lot. You know, that it's commonplace now, but, um, you know, we saw it a lot early on, so... Um, so it'd be cool to, to point all that stuff out as we go along, especially from somebody, you know, folks that read it when it came out and then are reading it kind of for the first time later. I think also um, a lot of the resonance that Watchmen has seen and in, in the comics industry and what we're seeing now that we talked about before we started recording, which is the reemergence of Watchmen. I, I'd imagine that we'd be talking about that uh, a lot too, because uh, a lot of us that are on are. First-time readers. Uh, some people, uh, like Jim, uh, have <laughs> read this back in the '80s. Um, I know I've read this a couple times, but we also have a lot of, um, you know, people on the conference call here who have—I don't want to say limited experience with Watchmen, but I would definitely label them as, uh, you know, fresh eyes like uh, Ken and, and John and a few other folks too. Yeah, so I'd um, really be interested to hear what you guys have to think about all this. Well, if I can jump in. Um I, yes. This is my first. <laughs> thank you. This is my first time uh, reading it, and I, I think I'm a pretty common story. Um, I, I bought the trade probably over a year ago, and it's been intimidating me from my bookshelf um, since that time. And I even started it once previously, and something interrupted my reading, and I dropped it for a long period of time. And um, 
so I picked it back up again for the first time, and it's uh, it's quite it is quite dense, and um, I like to read trades usually, and I think I would have benefited from reading this in the issues to not be so overwhelmed, you know, in one sitting. If that makes any sense? Yeah, John. Uh, that's exactly how I felt the first time I read it. It's uh, I think Alan Moore in general was pretty dense and pretty wordy uh is a little bit uh difficult to get used to and even uh with this second time that i'm reading it uh i'm definitely seeing a lot more that i didn't get on that initial read and i just think it's probably has a lot to do with it being such an undertaking it's too much i mean i remember when i read this the first time i completely skipped sections of the black freighter um sub uh, story within a story What's the I, Black Freighter? Like, you know. <laughs> that's a pirate comic? Or that's something yeah. else? Okay. Yeah. I skipped that and the, or skimmed through the Black Freighter stuff and then kind of really, really skimmed through the pro stuff the first time around. Um, and then the second time around, after I, you know, I really dug into the pro stuff, probably more so than the issue stuff, and was glad I did because it really, it really brings about a lot. And, that, and that's another thing that, you know, and even nowadays you don't see a whole lot of it. It's just that whole, all that prose section in the back of every issue is just something that was just so, you know, bizarre. You know, it's just, you know, a comic book is a comic book. And this kind of breaks that convention by, by saying it's a comic book, but, you know, there's novel excerpts in it or, you know, right, faux novel right. excerpts. I thought that, I'm sorry. I was going to say, was this prose pieces that are in this trade, they were in the individual issues as well? <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I all thought right. it was extras for the trade. Yeah, that's what I thought. No, yeah. they were in the individual issues when it came out. Um, I, I know I'm an old fart, but uh, when they first came out, I remember I was very much into the Alan Moore Swamp thing. I'd read Miracle Man from Eclipse, and then when I heard Alan Moore was doing a major superhero thing for DC, of course, I gravitated to it, even though I think I was uh, in high school at the time and I had no money. But each issue did have those um, the text passages in the back. I really loved them, too, because it really fleshed out the background of the world, made it feel more real, um, to have the context to, you know, to, for everything to be seen in. Jim, I have a question about uh, that from the original issues. Um, did that, uh, did all the text at the end, did that, uh, how was that taken by people who were reading it at the time? Because I know with, I don't know if anyone knows the, the Batman issue that came out, uh, I think that was last November or so, that was all text. I know that was, a lot of people didn't like that. I don't know if that had, this had the same, uh, people had the same thoughts about this. Oh, the one from Grant Morrison? Yeah. Well, the cool, I think the cool thing about it is it has the text in the back. It doesn't hurt the story if you don't read it, but it definitely adds a whole different layer to it if you do. Um, I remember sitting around the comic shop as these issues came out and, you know, BSing with the, the rest of the guys. And, uh, um, for the most part, we loved it just because it fleshed out the world so much and just added so much, especially like the, the under-the-hood passages that Hollis Mason writes and the, um, the whole Daniel Dreiberg uh, uh, owl um, paper. It's something that Alan Moore even does today. I mean, all the way to like the extraordinary gentleman, the Black Dossier. A lot of parts of that were written in prose. So, I just, I just think it's interesting that people can criticize Morrison for something that is quote unquote unconventional, but then look to Watchmen as the, I don't know, standalone, the paragon, the height of the industry at its best that uses those same conventions. 
But, I mean, what is the Internet other than a million people all screaming at once? So go figure. Right. And also with that issue, that the Morrison issue we're talking about, which that's going to wait a little bit again from Watchmen, but I think that suffered a little bit from uh, the uh, computer-generated art that was in that issue. But that's getting Adam, a little bit off subject. Save that for your Morrison ap- apologist podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that uh, Moore did the same thing in Swamp Thing, too. If I remember, he had one um, issue where Swamp Thing's consciousness was traveling through space or something, and it was all done in giant panels with them um, with pros. I can't remember which issue it was. Then. So it goes back but to he, that. You know, the thing I find interesting is, is just, you know, as we're talking and throwing out a couple inferences or, or instances of it, they're very few and far between. You know, this isn't something, this was kind of definitely unique at the time, and even, like I said, even today it's still unique. It's not something that, you know, you see very often, so. So any other initial thoughts from anybody? It's interesting to me now that you say that, like how many things that were borrowed in the 80s from Watchmen, that whole grim and gritty postmodern stance and everything like that, and yet there's some things that are just totally part of Watchmen that nobody even touched, like you said, like the prose parts. Can somebody help me out with a timeline here? Watchmen, when did Watchmen come out in relation to The Dark Knight Returns? If I'm not mistaken, I believe Dark Knight was first. Okay. Let me... I ask only because I just recently read that for the first time, and that I really didn't like. I didn't care for that as much. I mean, there's portions of it I liked, but that vision of the future, that that's what a world, a future world of a world with heroes could become, I really didn't believe that could happen. Yet with Watchmen, I'm buying it. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I just didn't wonder how, the, how that worked out when they first came out, if that was the same kind of sentiment. Like one I really liked, one I really don't like. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with You're that. off my Christmas card list. <laughs> it, it looks like it preceded it just by a few months. Um, Dark Knight Returns is March of 86. 86 was a magic uh, year for comics. We had Dark Knight Returns, Watchmen, uh, V for Vendetta was starting to be printed by DC in comics. Um, it was it was the year everybody thought comics would finally be taken seriously and you know grow up and become the you know get out of the you know artistic gutter or whatever that they're in. But um, I guess it wasn't meant to be until now. It's amazing. Two of the most highly regarded works in comics coming out simultaneously, and now we're excited about you know the next countdown issue. Well, Do you mean not- um, <laughs> Final Crisis and Green Lantern, John? Oh, yeah, Final Crisis and Green Lantern. <laughs> no, I meant Dark Knight. Anyway. All right, so anybody, anybody else have anything to say before we kind of dive into the, to the page by page? Good. Well, I just think, uh, just kind of keeping back of your mind, some of the uh, symbols that were that Moore and Gibbons used a lot in the book were, well, the happy face, um, the, the spray-painted tag who watches the Watchmen. That's popping up everywhere I look. Um, and also uh, the blood, which is in blood red, that kind of, you know, and that's even used as um, kind of a filmmaking technique to show danger, you know, uh, things along those lines. So those are the kind of um, things to kind of keep your eyes out for. And as far as themes, I think that uh, millennialism, is probably one of the biggest ones in here with the whole end of the world, you know, scenario. Um, 
coming down the pike. And it's just interesting that, you know, 15 years later, not in comics, but in the real world, that saw its head again with the dawn of, of you know, the new century. In the first issue especially, the, the one theme that I kept noticing was that of height. Even if you look at the first panels, the last panels, um, the perspective goes from ground level right. up higher. Um, when Rorschach goes to see Ozymandias, he has to climb up to the top of the building. When he goes to see Dr. Manhattan, Dr. Manhattan is 50 feet tall. So that's like, I'm, even in the last scene with Dan and Lori when they're looking down mm-hmm. over the building, especially in this first issue, I mean, yeah. that's a theme uh, in almost every page. That in particular jumped out to me. The first page and last page just mirroring each other like that. Yeah, and, that's, and, that's and another. Both, I was going to say, and also with a, starting with a close-up of the, of the uh, happy face button. Just yeah, I mean, on that. not to go into the movie because we don't know anything about it yet, but that's, you look at that first page and, you know, I want to see that opening shot yeah. in the movie. That's, that's drawn oh, yeah, no like doubt. a movie scene. No doubt. That, you know, the, the, that's one of the other themes, too, is the whole symmetry. You know, it comes up a lot. There's actually an issue you know, that we'll get to later on called fearful symmetry, and the whole thing is literally a mirror image of itself as far as design and, and panel layout and, and a lot of the art. So it's kind of it's interesting. And, and the, the, one of the things you notice on, you know, looking at page one, if you, if you compare page one to page um, 26, which is the last, you know, actual drawn page, it, it's almost a, a, a complete, you, you, they compare very well. The, the panel layout is exactly the same. The, the, the images are, are almost exactly the same. Um, the, you know, the number of you know, characters in the panels, all that kind of stuff is, is very symmetrical between the first page and the last page. That and the fact that the cover, the cover to each issue is like a blown up um, component of the first panel. So when you look at the cover and you see, you know, the kind of the corner of the, the smiley face with the blood drop on it and then the, you know, blood pooling around it, and you look at the first panel and it's just, it's just a less detailed, pushed away version of that, of that cover yeah, image. Yep. And we'll see that for all that's 12 a, issues. It's the same thing. That's interesting. I had not uh, even noticed that uh, before until you just mentioned that and now I'm flipping through. Mm-hmm. I just did the same and thing, and I'm seeing that. I think that the best books really are cool. the ones that, not necessarily that that everyone likes, but the ones that everyone will talk about. And I think that you know, <laughs> the fact that it sold two hundred thousand copies last month is a pretty good testament to its staying power in the industry. And like I mentioned earlier, as that kind of gold medal status it has in the industry, too. Yeah, I mean, DC expects to sell 900, they're printing 900,000 copies in 2008, or into, into 2009. They expect between now and a year from now to sell almost a million copies of the trade. I wouldn't be surprised when I was in my LCS the other day, they had a whole uh, display of nothing but Watchmen trades. Right. Yeah, the, the local LCS in Austin here, um, right after Comic-Con, they were the only shop they were the only place in Austin that had any copies at all, and they probably had at least three to 400 copies, and they had it everywhere. Well, I'm definitely I mean, in there. I, I bought it only because the movie was coming out. I mean, it was on my radar, and I probably would have got to it eventually, but the fact that there was a movie coming out prompted me to get it now. Yeah, like I said, I, I had it sitting around, but the, the first trailer that popped up for the movie is what got me to say, all right, you know, it's time. That kind of indirectly is my story, too. My wife uh, saw the trailer before Dark Knight, 
and ask me a bunch of questions about it. I'm like, well, I might as well just get the book and we'll both read it. Yeah. yeah it's definitely, you know, I mean, definitely sparked this you know, conversation and, you know, wanting to, to do this whole thing was, you know, the trailer and everybody's renewed interest in it, which I think is awesome. And hopefully, you know, some of that will, some of that interest will translate into, you know, folks getting either back into comics or, you know, or new people getting into comics that hadn't been before. So, you know, between this and The Dark Knight, I think it's just a, you know, perfect timing. So one of the, you know, we talked we talk a little bit about symbolism and, you know, the, one of the, th- two of the things um, that constantly reappear throughout the rest of the book are very evident on this page. And one of them is the smiley, with or without the, the blood splatter on it. And you see it everywhere. You see it in, you know, the, you know, balloons, you see it in the sky and the moon. And, you know, you see this, this smiley, round smiley face image everywhere. And as we go on, we'll, I'll try and uh, remember to point them out where I remember and, t- and where I took notes to show them. And then of course, if anybody else sees one, um, it seems like every time I read something online or talk to somebody that, that sees one, they always bring one up that I, I, I didn't catch. They're kind of hidden. It, it almost seems everywhere. Um, the other one is a triangle, um, which is kind of the whole Ozymandias, Adrian Vite, you know, his whole empire thing. And we see that, that triangle here as well, like in the middle of the, of the first page on the truck, on the top of the truck, you see the, the, the triangle and then um, the panel after that. And then, of course, the last panel, which is just a, an extruded version of the, of the middle panel where you see that truck with that triangle on the right. top. Yep. The other thing I didn't notice at first through reading through it, and, you know, of course, I you know, start looking at you know, all, all sorts of places online that you know, have people that have dedicated pages and pages and pages of the web to this thing, but the cars all look funny, and they're all electric. Like, all the vehicles riding around in, in this world are all electric, and the, the, the gasoline combustion engine vehicles are kind of like a, a thing of the past. And like an, I think they you know, explain that. Antiquated. I'm sorry? I think at one point, they, I'm sorry to interrupt, I think at one point they explained oh. that, that uh, Dr. Manhattan is able to make enough lithium that they can make cheap electric cars. I think it's during a, a conversation he's having with Hollis Mason. Uh, the original night night owl that is ringing a bell could be it, this thing is so dense i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> that there's conversation i'm trying to remember uh, the gist of it is like uh hollis mason is like well at least i know how to fix cars and then dr manhattan is like well i'm sure the new electric cars will be easy to work on too now that i can make them happen interesting this also happened so bad jim i'm sorry I'm sorry, I just wanted to mention that line from the trailer is right here on the first page. There is. So I'll look up and shout, save us, and I'll look down and whisper, no. You must have been reading my mind. That's, that's exactly where I was going next. That, I, uh-huh. I just think that is probably the best line in the whole book. I find myself, as I'm reading it, to go back to that trailer and trying to pick out the scenes that I just read and just seeing more and more. And that's, that, that was the first one I noticed. Yeah, it's just the whole you know Rorschach's journal. And you know the other thing I noticed, too, is that whenever Rorschach speaks in the, quote, in the journal, um, he has a much different voice in the journal than he seems to be in when he speaks to people in person. His internal voice is different or more around and well-spoken than, or just more, verba- more verbose than it is when he speaks to someone. Right. Yeah, it's a lot more, his speech is a lot more, seems a lot more eloquent, a lot yes. more thought out. That's the word. When he speaks to people, it's almost like he's uncomfortable and he doesn't quite know what to say. And, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, speaks in phrases, not in sentences. And all those grunts and groans and sounds that 
them out pretty frequently. Yeah. The other thing to note is 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 on you know page one the kind of the kooky guy. You know, I guess at this point, spoiler alert, it's kind of a, a, a not not much of a necessity at this point. But the guy walking around with the the, the sign, the kind of the crazy looking guy. Yeah, that, that's something that's I. At. Well, thanks. <laughs> no, actually, I was just gonna say was holding hold hold on holding on to that one that line I uh, was reading it and I noticed him and then I noticed him in like chapter two and I'm like wait a minute and, and I thought I had figured I, I figured that out that that was going to end up being Rorschach. You guys just blew my mind. <laughs> I didn't catch that. I didn't notice him on page uh, one, but I did notice him uh, on page uh, four, uh, and he's holding that same sign, so that kind of well correlates back. I really didn't pay him any mind the first time I went through chapter one, but when I went through chapter two and I saw him again talking to the, uh, the newspaper vendor, and I'm like, wait a minute, didn't I see him? And I went back, saw it, and I'm looking, and I'm like, all right, he's always around. Who is he? And eventually I figure, wait a minute, that's that's Rorschach. Yeah, it, it becomes a lot, you know, obviously a lot more evident you yeah. know, as it goes on and when he reveals himself. But, you know, it's just, again, it's one of those things where you read through it multiple times and there's so much stuff that you pick up on that was, you know, thrown right in your face that you just didn't notice. I also think that it's pretty neat the fact that they put Adrian's uh, company uh, truck right in front of um, all the blood because they're basically telling you this is who did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that goes back to, you know, no, Sir no, Arthur no. Conan Doyle. No, and wait a minute, wait oh. a minute, wait a minute. You're just telling me, you're telling me who, who's, who the killer is? <laughs> Suck you, Mac. <laughs> Well, we said spoilers, right? Well, yeah, but some of us are reading it like as we go. I guess I'll put the book down now. <laughs> Edit them out. <laughs> go read Green Lantern. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but that just kind of goes back to um, the methodology of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe, who said that you know a good mystery lets you know who did it in the first chapter. And I, I really think that that's telegraphed in all of Chapter 1 whenever Rorschach um, does meet up with him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, again, it's another one of those, read through it again, and, you know, boom, you, you know, everything, everything you needed is right there in front of you. But moving, moving on to, to one of the things I noticed on page 2, when you start to get into the interior of, of Blake's apartment and the cops start talking and, you know, they, they start to reenact you know, what they think happened. And the whole, the way it all cuts between what they're thinking and what really happened, that whole alternating, you know, you get alternating of, you know, color scheme, um, you know, you, where you get the red and the green and the red and the green. And to me, the, one of the things I noticed too is it almost has like a CSI kind of feel to it, you know, where nowadays, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more so in TV, which gives it more of this whole cinematic or, you know, um, you know motion picture kind of feel to it is, you know, the whole reenacting of the crime after the fact, and then you kind of see it play out. Um, you know, which, which, again, like I said, you see that on TV a lot with a lot of the crime shows where they'll, you know, they'll, they'll reenact the crime and then you'll kind of see it, you know, what really happens as they reenact it, which I thought was just kind of interesting. Again, it's, it's shots that you'd like to see on a big screen. Exactly, exactly. And then they, you know, they, they pretty much continue the same theme through the next page. It's this whole alternating panel scheme. And again, everything that 
you know, where they show Blake's actual murder, again, like Adam was saying, it's red, you know, so you get the whole, you know, you get blood, you get that whole, you know, visual style of, you know, something, you know, this is something bad that's happening, and, um, you know, almost kind of like it's it's surreal. Plus, you can follow the smiley face all through above this uh, double-page spread. Blake's wearing it on his uh, robe as he's getting beaten up, and then you see it fall with him in the last panel where his ground floor coming up on page three. Oh. The smiley face is in every red panel. Right. That last panel on page three is just gorgeous. Yeah, the, the whole the way the glass is shattering and he's kind of just falling back on himself and. John's looking at his butt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> his butt's covered. Just. The other thing it, you know when that I noticed on the third panel on page three is you get this you know full on look of Edward Blake and you kind of see he's he's an older guy, you know he's got this big scar on his face. And he's got a couple teeth missing. Um, and he just looks rough and weathered. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how, you know, as we get into the flashbacks and see how the story progresses. From right here, you can tell that there's there's more to this guy's character than, you know, you're just seeing. This guy has a lot of history, and there's a lot going on, you know, with him. almost kind of seems like uh, these cops are, uh, you know, detective plot point and uh, lieutenant exposition. They're just going and setting up the whole scenario mm -hmm. uh, until Rorschach takes over. And so as far as... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, as far as the uh, character of Edward Blake, just a, a question for my own. That uh, They don't seem to... The officers don't seem, of course, to know who he is at all. And with him being one of the uh, uh, superheroes who's still allowed to do what he's uh, to be a superhero, basically, by the government, uh, is it. Um, I think I thought it was a little weird that no one knew who he was. Um, I don't know. Does he still wear that mask that they show on uh, a couple panels later once Warshak goes in? Or I was my understanding. No, I, was just, I was just saying my understanding of it was since that you know we'll get into the you know the, and that kind of talk about the Keen Act, but since that passed in '77, he's been kind of my my impression was of it was he was he's kind of like on behind the scenes and kind of undercover and you know working with the the government, um, so he's not kind of out there in the forefront. Doctor Manhattan's like the public face, and he's the behind the scenes getting his hands dirty kind of guy. Yeah, so that would you know. That that way, you know, yeah, way back when he was a part of the Minuteman and he was kind of an acting costumed adventurer and people might have known him. But, you know, basically 30, you know, or, well, I guess at this point, you know, 10 years have passed or almost 10 years have passed and nobody's really even kind of seen him or, or should have seen him. So kind of, I just took it as kind of an out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, you brought up a question. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I say you brought up a, another thing about did the cops not know who the comedian was. Did did Rorschach not know either who he really was? Because it seems like he was just discovering that that he, Eddie was the comedian that at that moment, and he even talks to that effect when he meets up with Night Owl later on. Uh, but when he was walking by the bloodstains, the um, he saw the, the yeah, right, and so he knew to investigate. Like right, I'm saying before that, apartment. before that, he didn't know no. um, that Edward Blake was. The night owl, or was excuse me, was the comedian. He didn't know their his true identity. 
which I found odd. I wouldn't have expected that. Kind of like the Justice League knows who each other, who they all are. I figured these guys would as well. I guess because Rorschach was kind of part of this like Generation Two heroes, right? Um, you know, and didn't and wasn't really involved with him as much because I think at that point the, the shift with the with the comedian character is more kind of a. Um, you know, again, kind of this cloak and daggery, kind of behind the scenes kind of guy. Like you know who the quote comedian is, but you you know you don't you know they didn't really know who he was. Whereas I think you get those Generation One characters, the Minutemen characters, that they knew Edward Blake was the comedian, but that you know these kind of second generation characters may or may not have been privy to the fact that his actual identity was Edward Blake. And you find out uh, that there's a lot of people uh, in because of something that uh, the comedian does. Uh, that he's kind of on outsides with them, anyways. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, the other thing, again, moving forward, like on page four, um, when you when you talk about the you know the cops are kind of giving their theory of what happened, and they're just quick to dismiss to try and dismiss the motive as either you know like maybe it's a suicide or you know they there seems to be like this necessity for them to just want to close this thing out. And just, you know, the simplest answer is the, is what happened. So, you know, to me, it just, it seems like, you know, the cops in this world are just, you know, or maybe crime is being over, you know, rampant or being overrun. And, you know, that, you know, they're just looking to kind of close things out or just keep it simple, not get crazy, you know, not stir up a bunch of trouble and just, you know, kind of close things out and, and move on. It looks like he specifically wanted to close it out because he didn't want any mass Avengers to get in on it. He kind of expected that to happen if they kept didn't keep it quiet, and he didn't want yeah. that. You know, so they suggest that maybe did he know that he was something else with it? He talked about that, didn't he? Mm-hmm. The cop? Yeah, here we go. In the middle of the page, we kind of get the next uh, recurring item that comes up is the whole Gunga Diner, which I think is just a, a really cool uh, name. Yeah, that's going to be my next restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> for a place to eat. So it's kind of like the, the, I guess, the McDonald's of the of the Watchmen world, which is kind of interesting. Uh, they seem, also, they if you notice on uh, panel three, uh, you have the first, uh, the Black Freighter showing up for the first time. Uh, and the kid, so that will come up into play a lot uh, as this goes on. Not much in this first issue, but just that's the first time I noticed that. And then we we get also you can kind of see behind the kid. There's a there's a poster that says something about Vietnam 51st State Official. So again, kind of this foreshadowing to you know what happened during that whole Vietnam conflict and you know how how you know, you know what role the um, you know these characters are playing that moving forward. That and the fact that you, because I, one of the things I was reading online is, and I, I, I kind of noticed it, but didn't notice it. It's kind of one of those things that's always in the background, but you don't really think about it until it, it kind of slaps you in the face is in this world, superheroes are real. And this is kind of a realistic take on superheroes. So in this world, if superheroes are real, then comics wouldn't really be about superheroes because they're kind of around every day and see them. So, the, the the thing in this world, and the Black Freighters, you know, very evident of this, is that comics are, you know, the, the comic world is filled with, you know, pirate tales and stuff and not superhero tales. So we even see the, you know, the, the comic shop in this world, you know, one of them, one of the chains they show is called Treasure Island. And, you know, of course, you get the Black Freighter comic and, um, you know, the, some of the some of the pictures we see around are all have this pirate theme when it comes to comic, you know, 
as opposed to our world, which has you know superhero themes everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think the coolest thing about page four is the, um, the little like continuous uh, picture as they show the comedian falling on the left hand side of the page. That's all one perspective picture of uh, the buildings. Yeah, it is. There's no three side. different comedians falling through. Yeah, and again, like you know, like we mentioned earlier, every time you see that kind of reenactment portion, it's again still in that red. Even you know we're three pages into it, and you know we keep cutting back to the to the present time, and every time we flash back to that to that scene, it still has that kind of that red you know wash over the whole page. You know, going to the point about the uh, the guy with the end of the world sign as they're walking by on page four there, and they're talking about about Rorschach, and it's like, oh, I just got to shiver, must be getting cold, just as he's walking by him. Hmm. One of the many clues towards the identity. On page five, um, again, not having any background with with the character, it really started screaming Batman to me. Um, you know, you get the grappling hook, and he's scaling the building, and and as we as you go on to page six, that first panel, that posture on the ledge. You know, I, I don't know if it was meant to parallel him at all, but. That's when I started thinking, all right, this is the detective. This is the, you know, the vigilante detective character. Absolutely. I think it's almost... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, it's almost like the Batman archetype got split between uh, Night Owl and Rorschach. Like, Night Owl is the gadgety, Batplane, Batboat uh, side of Batman. And then Rorschach... It's like the gritty, grim, you know, dark night detective side of Batman, kind of. Yeah. Right. Just the way I can sign. Like earlier when you said that Nightwing was a, or Night, night Owl, excuse me, was an analog to Blue Beetle, I was like, whoa, wait a minute, that's not really what I expected. I just from costume design in general, I was putting him more with Batman. Yeah, I, I, I guess the Blue Beetle thing comes in with the whole owl ship and the, you know, the, kind of the gadget. Yeah, right. stuff I'll see that as well. But, but yeah, definitely. There's a lot of. I think in a lot of these characters, there's a lot of Batman going on. I mean, you know, definitely in Rorschach, definitely in Night Owl. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of a lot of Batman spread around. I think. Hey, quick side note for all you gadget aficionados out there: um, the Rorschach's uh, grappling gun yep. is is being reproduced from DC Direct, so you can buy it. Nice. How many cool. hundreds of dollars is that going to cost you? A good chunk. <laughs> I think it's also interesting to point out that uh, you have uh, four pages of almost no dialogue at all. Of course, with him being alone, but uh, you don't have him talking to himself or anything. You know what? That still told me so much about who he is without any dialogue at all. Just watching him go, watching him work, watching him figure out this closet. This, this I didn't need dialogue. It's really well done. Yeah. Plus, Gibbons' uh, camera angles are great. I mean, first you get him from the back, then you get him from three quarters, then you get him from the side. I mean, for something that's like such a simple operation, uh, Gibbons, by using a lot of different camera angles, really brings a lot of uh, dramatic uh, appeal to it. Definitely. And then again, we still see you know more of the whole circular symbolism. You know, on page five at the top, we got the you know the full moon showing up, very yellow. Um, no detail to it. It's just this big yellow. You know, object in there. You know, to kind of again analog the whole smiley face thing. And then the the other thing I noticed is, you know, one of the other themes in the in in this that that Adam talked about earlier was the whole apocalyptic, you know, millennial, um, you know, thing going on. And you see that 
there's a sign on the building for it, it turns out it's a candy called meltdowns with with two m's and it's a it's a picture of you know like an atom bomb going off so again there's a lot of this apocalyptic you know nuclear holocaust type imagery and and talk going on that we'll see you know get more and more of it as, as time goes by that was a really real fear back in the 80s, I mean, during the Cold War, mm-hmm. and, it, and it really gets referenced a lot in Watchmen, I mean, the fear of constantly, you know, every day could be, you know, a total annihilation of the human race. You know. so. Duck and cover, baby, duck and cover. <laughs> exactly. You're in your desk, kids. I think it's interesting also to point out that... Uh, with uh, the gadgets that Rorschach uses and seeing uh, when he's investigating the tools that uh, the comedian used. And then as you go on with our characters, uh, that in this world, uh, besides um, Dr. Manhattan, uh, you don't really have characters that have superhuman powers. They're all more along the line of, of uh, athletic, uh, like a Batman or something like that, that uh, not really metahumans or mutants or anything like that from uh, the other universes. Other than Doctor Manhattan, are there any? Is there anyone else with any kind of ability other than, as you say, athletics? I'm pretty sure he is the only one. Right. Yeah, he's no. the only true, you know, super. Well, for the most part, true superhuman. Um, you know, throughout the, the history of these heroes, I, I, I know at the end we'll get to we'll get to another character that has some unique abilities, but but for the most part, yeah, Manhattan's the only one. We also um, get the title of this chapter, which was At Midnight, All the Agents. Do you guys know where that comes from? It's at the end of the, uh, the, end of the issue. It's the rest of the quote from the song. Yep. It's from, um, it's, well, the quotes, and I think this is a recently published article. Um, Neil Gaiman's come out and said that he helped Alan Moore pick the quotes to, I guess, kind of act as like a footnote at the end of each chapter. Um, this one comes from Bob Dylan's song Desolation Row, which, like Jim just said, is quoted, um, the, the lyrics in Fuller quoted um, at the end of the chapter. But um, Dylan wrote that kind of as a tip of the hat to Jack Kerouac and the beat movement, and more specifically Kerouac's um, book, which I read uh, a couple years ago, um, Desolation Angels. And I, <laughs> the idea of absolute desolation like um, Russ just pointed out, was um, like with Meltdown, Nuclear Holocaust, and I don't know, it, it, the idea of an arms race plus <laughs> everything else that Rorschach just cataloged in his journal entry. Right. A couple, couple of things about page eight um, really stood out for me. Um, the first thing was, you know, we're talking about a character called the Comedian, and his costume, you know, is draped in red, white, and blue. Now, I, I, know he's, I know he's working for the government, but right away that screamed, you know, America is a joke. That's, that's the first thing that came to my mind when I saw it. Um, and the God. leather, you know, this is obviously like a masochistic. <laughs> the, the gimp mask? That's exactly. Thank you. I'm glad you said it because I always come off like the weirdo. <laughs> but, you know, Pulp Fiction, yeah. Pulp Fiction, um, you know, the gimp, yep. it's. And those two things just screamed out again. I didn't know the character from any, you know, I, I'd never read it before. And it was, he's a comedian in, you know, red, white, and blue. And he's wearing all this leather with the gimp mask. You can order that one from DC Direct? <laughs> the gimp mask? <laughs> Only if they have the chaps. 
That was, I, you know, I'd never, that was an awesome observation. I'd never, I never even thought to put. I'm awesome. You are. Um, I think the one thing, the gut reaction is to kind of align him with the Joker just because of the obvious name inference. But the comedian was never really a complete picture for me when I read this as a kid, only because this really involved a lot of hunker down flashback reading and different iterations of these analog heroes and characters and stuff. Um, like I said, this is not a one sitting kind of a book. I don't think guys. No, not at all. One thing on page seven too, is this is the first time we see that when Rorschach speaks verbally, um, that he's got funky looking thought balloons or word balloons. You know, his word balloons are kind of, I mean, just like he is, they're just kind of off. Right. Or everybody else's, you know, the typical rounded, you know, thought balloon. Yeah, Larry, later on, Laurie refers to it as a monotone voice, so to speak. I'm trying to, you know, listen, to th- think of his words in that way, a monotone, kind of low or like almost, almost a, for lack of a better way of describing it, a, a Christian Bale Batman kind of voice. Yeah. The, only one, the only other character that gets a special uh, balloon treatment like that is Dr. Manhattan. All his right. uh, balloons are blue. Right. But even then, there's you know the shape of them are still pretty natural. I mean, they're you know it's it's a it's a round you know balloon shape with the blue highlights. Yeah. Um, with him, it. with him, I think of more of a like a like a an echoey kind of vo- voice to him. Like there's like a a booming echo echo to it. Yeah. The other thing that was cool is you kind of see again that whole detective aspect of Rorschach, where he kind of you know first he's he's you know, I could totally see this playing out on on film where he's pulling this coat hanger and you know, looking at the outside, looking at the inside, he's, you know, undoes the coat hanger, he, you know, puts it on the inside, puts it on the outside, and he's like, yeah, something's not right here. And then, you know, boom, finds, finds the, you know, the, the false door or whatever. So, you know, again, this, you know, kind of gives you the impression, you know, this guy, he may be a little bit off, but he's a, he's a pretty sharp dude. The other cool thing about it is when they unmask him uh, later in the story, sorry, spoiler alert, <laughs> but, uh, uh, he no longer has the uh, funky word balloons. His word balloons become normal again. I guess because he doesn't have his Rorschach face on. Right. Well, when he's talking to the uh, the newspaper vendor, so as far as I've gotten with him, you know, he speaks normally. Right. Do they do they explain then, do they explain the mask later on? Like just like the deal with the, uh, the ink blots. They and explain underneath? where. Yeah, they do. They explain they, where he gets it. Okay. They do. I think it's isn't it in one of the prose pages at the end where they talk about. Um, the whole cloth and the material and that dress that was made for what was it, Kitty Genovese or whatever, where they, that that material was made for her or, or some something like that. Where they it talk was, about the the material and then how you know that's pretty much where it came from or something like that. Yeah, they really stress that in that one chapter. You're right. Then when we get to page eight, we get that transition from page eight to page nine. To me, this is another again one of these cinematic type of type of transfers where we get, you know, Rorschach looking at the photo of the, of the, of the Minutemen. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, again, the next panel is a, is a close up. And, you know, if you, if you kind of look at that panel in and of itself, it's just like, Oh, he's still looking at it. And then boom, we get this transition, you know, of, yeah. you know, night all one and night all two. So again, it's more of this kind of cinematic elements that, that, that keep showing up. And, and you can really see how this can actually be just be used. Here's, here's your storyboards for the movie. Just make this. 
because that I could see that shot as well. We keep talking about that. You can push it on the picture, pull out, and you're in a different room. Jeez, we could have written Zack Snyder's screenplay for him then. <laughs> Imagine that. Stay true to the source material. The other thing is on page nine, one of the you know it's got it's got some books there, and one of the books um, is the Gladiator. And I did a little bit of looking on online with that too, and I guess that was a huge influence for you know Superman. That was kind of like the first superhero you know book or you know that, that credited with giving Siegel and Schuster the idea of Superman. Yeah, I saw the same uh, comment online. Uh, the panel just below it, the middle one, uh, you see uh, actually uh, the who watches the Watchmen phrase. Uh, half of that on the garage. And uh, one of the things to notice, yeah, pale horse. The, the, one of the things we noticed too is you never see the whole who watches the Watchmen completely spelled out on panel anywhere. You always either catch the beginning of it or the end of it, or you know the top. It's always cut off. You never, they never actually show that whole phrase on any panel in the whole book. Another catch on uh, the last panel of page 9 is when Dan's walking away, there's an empty box on the ground, and it's from the Gunga Diner. (laughs) And um, any Rudyard Kipling fans out there will know that uh, Gunga Din was the name of an Indian servant who, in a poem by Kipling, um, died saving the life of of a British soldier. And the Gunga Diner was seen... Um, previously in the um, police officer scenes when they were walking out of the comedian's apartment on page four. So we're going to start to see that um, repeated a little bit here and there, but the idea of this um, alleged savage sacrificing himself for everyone else, I think, is the closest um, corollary to Rorschach than anybody else, not really Dan. Um, Dan, if anybody, is a soldier, and he's a good soldier, but Rorschach seems to be that um, noble savage that I think Gunga Din is a little closer to. But that's you know that's just my two cents on that one. The coolest thing about this panel, now that now that you've drawn my attention to it, it is right here where it says "obsolete models of specialty" as it shows Dryberg walking away in shadow. Right, right after yeah. the old night owls. Right after the old school night owl and the the recently retired night owl, both obsolete models. Yeah. And then, again, and then again, this is kind of our first glimpse at the fact that you know there are more than one generation of hero in this world, and that you know there was kind of the original, you know the the original young guys, and then and then the guys that took over, and then you know we get this, um, you know, allusion again to the you know the Kane Act, and you know how these guys got retired and stuff like that. Do we uh, ever find out uh, what Dan Dryberg uh, does for a living since he's uh, been retired from being a superhero? Because he's obviously got some source of income that's uh, pretty substantial. Yeah, I don't recall. I don't recall if they if they mention that or not. There is a scholarly paper in the prose pieces written by him about uh, owls about um, why he's drawn to owls. Uh, I don't know if that means he's an ornithologist or not. Let's see if I can find it real quick. 
then we get to, to page 10 and Dan comes home and again sees Rorschach basically has raided his pantry and is chowing down. <laughs> There's some and, nice uh, big uh, yellow circles on the top there, second and third panel. The yeah. light from the light post and uh, I guess that's a ref reflection of another light post on the third panel. Mirroring those happy faces. And then the second, and on the second panel where you have the circle, you get the post that's kind of at the 12 o'clock position. So again, more of this, you know, the symbolism of the circle with the smiley face and the circle also, you know, representing the clock and how the, you know, the, 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 the post is kind of representing midnight, which is this whole, you know, countdown, you know, clock to, to midnight. And, I think Rorschach eating, uh, the way he eats, it really kind of proves us uh, our, our last theory about how, he, you know, in written, he's so eloquent, but in person, he's like more of a savage type character. You know, he's a mess. Yeah, he's just a slob. Right. And then you can see how Dan, you know, the, not only just in what he says, but just his facial reactions with the show, he's... You know, he's, it's like he's real uncomfortable around him. Yeah. And it's almost like he's afraid, oh, no, somebody saw him coming in and they're going to know. And I think that's know. a lot. That's more of it, especially when he wants him to you know, head out the back way. He's like, you know, I really don't need to be seen with you. I'm a little more embarrassed or disgusted to be with him. Yeah. And then, and then another great line is, you know, where he, he Rorschach hands him the, the comedian's button there and he, he says, what is it? The, this little stain, is that bean juice? Or, and he goes, that's right, human bean juice. Like he's, <laughs> his sense of humor is just so you know odd. Then they go in the basement and you get a look at uh, at the whole owl ship, or the you know part of it. You know this is where you start to get a sense that you know Dan is you know a part of this whole superhero mythos. Other than just you know the name Night Owl, you're getting to start to see you know again more of kind of this you know Bat Cave ish. Um, you know, and, and gadget, you know, kind of situation that he's got going on down there. Especially from uh, the large panel on page 13, I definitely get a Batman feel from, from the costume. Uh, saying there, I, I feel a lot more Batman than than uh, Blue Beetle. The yeah, you, got too. The, you got the utility belt and uh, the pointed ears. Yeah, well, a little cowl and cape in general. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the owl and the bat. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and then the uh, the middle panels, you start to get to really see kind of for the first time full on that, you know, the whole Rorschach mask and how it, you know, how it, it changes, that it's not just a, you know, kind of a static, um, you know, static image. And then um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, you look at, Driver, and he's kind of a kind of a schlub. You know, he's not. You know, we're used to seeing superheroes that are. You know, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but they're you know these these super fit guys, and you know they're like peak of human you know physical perfection, and you know especially in that last panel on page thirteen where he's just kind of you know just kind of leaning forward, and you can tell he's not you know some you know guy that works out you know five hours a day every day. Then again, on page 
starting on page 14, we get more of, of these, uh, these, I call them Rorschach ramblings, where he just kind of has these weird, almost like stream of consciousness type of, um, you know, things that he, he's writing in his journal that just, it's just, just very interesting dialogue. Why do you think um, fans are so passionate about the character of Rorschach? I think it's because he's kind of a mystery uh, throughout the whole book, and uh, he, he, he's so different uh, than even a lot of characters you see today. You're not really quite sure what you're going to get. Right. I think part of it too is that that paranoia. You know, he's 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 kind of like, you know, I think people can relate to him because I think everybody knows somebody that's kind of like Rorschach, where they're kind of like slightly paranoid, but yet, you know, when they talk about their paranoia, there's there's always like a sliver of truth that are you know even even in the most wildest accusations or the wildest you know um, conspiracy theories, there's always that you know little grain of truth in there that you know that little piece that you know kind of even even you know if you're skeptical of it, you kind of look back and go, yeah, I can kind of see where that might be. The, the really uh, tell, the most telling thing I think about Watchmen is the, the character with the, the most well-defined moral center is Rorschach, if you think about it. He doesn't compromise. In his mind, he knows what is right, what is wrong, even though it's paranoid and psychotic and freaked out. But, I mean, he's the one who never compromises his ideals throughout the entire story. And the only one. I think that's why he, he has such appeal. I don't think he's... Um, think? Jim, I don't think he's um, below criticism either because when the Rorschach test used in psychoanalysis was, you know, orig- uh, excuse me, originated around in the 50s, um, that test itself was used to um, more or less gauge a person's uh, personality and... Um, how well they could function in society. But the innate problem with the Rorschach test was that it was so open to interpretation when um, an analyst held up a card and you said what came to your mind when you saw the image. Actually, um, Grant Morrison, haha, John, is doing that right now with the Joker in Batman. Um, the same thing. And, and whenever Joker sees um, the Rorschach blots, he says, oh, uh, little pretty flowers, you know, and really he sees like these crazy blood stains. But there's no real gauge to measure results from a Rorschach test because there's the idea of randomness and in interpretation. And I don't think Rorschach himself is random, and this will play into why he chose the costume in a few, isu- a few issues from now. But I don't think he is able to function. And I think it's ironic that, well, he can function, but within a vacuum. But, like, when you put him around Dan, you know, he doesn't even look at Dan in the face when he's talking to him. Yeah, I think another uh, aspect of it, like you said, because the Rorschach plots are open to such interpretation, that Rorschach is almost like a reflection of the times themselves or the city themselves. You know, what what do you see in my face? Well, it's you. you know? huh. But if you think about it, like I said, the only one, the only character with the true moral center in the whole story is Rorschach. I mean, if if you've read the whole story, I mean, you know what I mean. I don't want to spoil it for those who are reading 
chapter by chapter, but I mean, everyone else in one way or another compromises their principles, but Rorschach never does. He's such um, a reactionary that it's almost, I, I, I get these two pictures of Rorschach in my head. I get one, the, the every man that we're following that's fighting crime, and two, the lunatic fringe person that lives just like just where that is on the fringe of society, because he, if if you read what he says, like listen to this. This is from page one. Um, uh, dog carcass in the alley this morning. Tire tread on burst stomach. This city is afraid of me. I have seen his true face. That sounds like Allen Ginsberg's how. No, I know it's not the greatest minds of my generation starving naked, hysterical through the Negro streets at dawn from how, but it reads like his journal entries, and I think Russell was talking about the stream of consciousness idea, but it reads like beat poetry from Kerouac, yeah. from, from that, and I know more um, kind of drew from William S. Burroughs and all of his uh, trips down Druggy Lane for inspiration, but I, I almost think that Rorschach and the fanboy or tendency to really, really go after this character is I, I think it's just that it's an overreaction, and I think in a lot of cases it's misplaced. This guy had, which will be revealed, spoilers. He had a really, really ridiculously insane childhood, and that's not a reason not to like someone as a character. But he—I don't know if he—he's closer to Vite than I think he is, because his whole thing is we're gonna. This is gonna be washed away. Something new is happening here, but it's so conservative because he thinks that everyone deserves it. Whereas Ginsburg, too, of the the monologue from a Taxi Driver, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, someday a real rain's gonna wash all the scum off the street. Exactly. So one end it's poetic, and the other end it's psychotic. I think that's the the basic dichotomy of the character. But it's so conservative that it goes against the liberal views of the beats with Ginsburg and everybody else too. And I, that really took me a hard time, a long time to digest, excuse me. Um, but if, and here's the interesting part. If Rorschach is based off of the Steve Ditko character, the question, okay, then you have to look at where the question came from, which was from objectivism, which is Ayn Rand's philosophy. And, when Alan Moore created Rorschach, along with Gibbons, he really took it and went a complete different direction because Moore and I, uh, Moore even said how much he had a disdain for objectivism. So he took Ditko's character and completely pushed it off off the deep end. Where you know, <laughs> and you could say this about you know um, conservative or, or liberal today. But I almost think that for as, cent- as um, for as much of a moral center that Rorschach has, Jim, that his center is still extremely skewed, regardless if he's fighting crime or not. From oh, everyone no else, doubt. no doubt at all. There, I mean, I'm and, just saying, compared to everyone else, I mean, like the comedian and everything else. I mean, like I said, his morals are incredibly psychotic and messed up, but he sticks to his guns and believes in them. At, at this, you know, just having the first reading through it uh, fresh in my mind, you know, at this point, the first time you read it, you're just like, what is this guy's story? You know, 
he he's the detective he's the vigilante he's he he can't eat like a human being you know he writes these crazy journals you just really have no clue you know that's that's beautiful <laughs> he's also the perfect character to introduce the whole milieu and to introduce all the other characters as he carries on his investigation I mean it's a perfect setup issue if you read it for the rest of the story all the major players are introduced uh, the situations and a lot of their relationships to each other are introduced all through Rorschach's uh, investigation in the first issue and again, he, you know, his whole deal is he is convinced that there's somebody going after costume heroes, and he has such a hard time, you know, trying to to convince people of it. Yet, you know, as the story goes along, it it really makes you question, you know, when you start hearing about all the folks that have, you know, all the all the heroes that have died or you know disappeared under strange circumstances or all these kind of things is, you know, how much of this is is how much of that is a part of this and. You know, why is it that nobody, you know, I mean, they all think he's just a kook. So, you know, right off the bat, no matter what comes out of his mouth is is uh, is just, you know, insanity. But, you know, again, you know, even out of the most insane, there's there's always a, you know, a little bit of, of sanity in there. There's also that idea in pop culture about how different cycles repeat themselves. And if you look at um, the plot point, plot device, whatever of superheroes being killed um, as some kind of grand purge. Um, you also saw that, at least with their family members, in Identity Crisis, and you also saw that with um, J. Michael Straczynski's Rising Stars, where the same, more or less, the same situation started. And I just think that they had to have gotten their cues from Watchmen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Identity Crisis has a... A lot of the same type ideas, uh, I think, in it. Uh, I don't want to go into too many of them because that might give away some parts further down the road within this story. Don't worry, Adam gave away the end already, so. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) Then we, uh, I guess the next big, big turn is that you know, again, we see the introduction of Ozymandias and and Adrian White as he's as he's known to the world now, um, and where Rorschach comes and comes to visit him. Um, and again, we you know right off the bat, you can one of the things you can tell about about this character is he he's a complete narcissist. I mean, everywhere you look, there's something that you know. There's an Ozymandias poster. There's figures. There's you know statues. There's I mean, the guy is just completely completely full of himself. And if you're looking at the pop culture cycle again, um, back when uh, Joe Maduria was doing um, Uncanny X-Men, they introduced the character of Ozymandias, um, who is a servant of Apocalypse in the X-Universe. I remember that. That one. Doomsday Clock. Given what we talked about before, I'm reading um, Ozymandias' dialogue now. I mean, looking for the clues now to find out what's coming. Again, what you were talking about before with the pages of the different panels and the, um, the coloring, we go from the, the bright reds and everything from the Rorschach interrogation in the bar to the way he's talking with Ozymandias, and it's all very blue 
and white and very you know cooling uh, palette. Um, it's really like this is one of the first comics where I really noticed the coloring uh, as part of the storytelling and really like setting the mood and tone for different parts. You guys know where um, the name Ozymandias comes from? Look upon you, works almighty and despair. <laughs> That'd be uh, Mary Shelley's husband, Percy by Shelley. And um, he wrote the poem um, in a writing competition a couple of years before, I believe, she published Frankenstein. And more or less, to give you the um, quick Cliff's notes on Ozymandias, it's more or less about, oh, the fall of mankind and all civilization. <laughs> Basically, the author of the poem is looking upon an ancient uh, statue from some long-forgotten uh, king and some long-forgotten kingdom. And at the base of the statue, he says, My name is Ozymandias. Look upon you, my works, all ye mighty in despair. But yet there's nothing left but ruins in the sand. <laughs> if you look at um, Adrian's action figures and stuff, uh, that potentially could, uh, you know, could be his own um, statues. Right. Yeah, I didn't think of that, but you're right. Yeah. The other thing to be done. You lose him? Yeah. Can anybody hear him? I can't hear him. I can't hear him. He broke up. He's still on. Editing. Can you hear me? There you are. Okay. Sorry about that. Um,. Where on the middle of page 17, where Rorschach says America has Dr. Manhattan, Reds have been running scared since 65. Again, we kind of get this clue that you know this this timeline is not the same as our own. That there's definitely something different about this timeline than, than our own regular timeline. I also like the fact that Rorschach was right. He knew where to go. Right. What do you mean? I mean, he's been going to all the the heroes. Just more of a warning. Do you think he's coming here because he knows something more? No, I just think it's it's just silly coincidence that he doesn't obviously that he doesn't realize just yet. Yeah, coming up right before he sees Doctor Manhattan, he pretty much lists all the other costumed adventurers and what happened to them. Oh, you know, why are so few of us left active, healthy, and wild without personality disorders? First night I love that. Yeah, it's it's great. He runs he runs down like every single one of the costume adventures. What happened to each one of them? Yeah, and I love None the fact that well. <laughs> that that he gets that line of you know why are there so few of us left active, healthy, and without personality disorders? You know, he totally sees himself as completely normal and you know not you know you know kind of this you know weird bent character at all. You know, right. his his vision of the world and how he sees it is completely, you know, different than anybody else that sees him. Back on page 18 where it says, uh, it says, Nuclear Doomsday Clock stands at 5 to 12, uh, Warren Expert. So again, an, another of this whole, um, you know, apocalypse prophecy and the whole, you know, the end of the world is coming. And, you know, it, again, it, it just, it totally is embedded in the eight you know that early mid 80s you know time frame where you know the the whole u.s russia standoff and the you know mutually assured destruction and all that all that going on and how much that situation would have been exacerbated by uh you know someone this super powerful as dr manhattan 
Yeah, he definitely ratchets it up a notch. Um, have you guys read uh, Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger? Oh, yeah, yes. I have. I have, I have not. So, you, well, the main character of that story, his name is Holden Coalfield. And Holden Coalfield is kind of just picture an updated version of Mark Twain's um, Tom Sawyer. And the book itself by Salinger, you know, had created such a pandemonium pandemic um, around the character, more or less a cult of character, if you want to look at today's you know celebrity status or even superhero status, that Holden was looked as, excuse me, was looked upon as the ultimate, um, maybe not nuts to the system kind of kind of a kid or personality, but definitely one who would question authority and act in a in, in a postmodern way. And out of that comes what's not anything that's diagnosed by the DSM, but um, you know, people in literature call this uh, Holden Caulfield syndrome, which more or less means that a young man, probably white, is angry at the world. Um, he has this kind of boyishness about him. And I also think that it kind of fits in line with Rorschach being a true believer. And while I don't think that Holden Caulfield and Rorschach are absolute, you know, uh, Complementary, complementarily of each other. There's this idea that if if you look at some of these you know MOOCs that are out today, whether it's Limp Biscuit or yesterday or Eminem, that they have this kind of confessional type uh, approach to their art. And Rorschach's confession to the world and how he sees it and how he can't help himself for feeling the way he does is in his journal, and that's the art that he creates. Right. Well, that makes sense. And there's there's definitely a lot of uh, of cult of personality around the character, but you can say the same thing for Dark Knight Returns or the Joker or anything else that's you know come out and is new and flashy lately. But I very much get what you're saying about him being a true believer, though, because he he really does believe in what he's doing to the detriment of everything else in his life. I mean, he has no life other than uh, cover you know for being Rorschach. And the other thing is, he's such a product of the times, too. He he was created well before then, but if you look at his purpose, like if on the grand life's purpose thing, his purpose was to be there at this time. The person who he is and who he was created as, really. You also uh, come to find out that Rorschach really can't separate himself so much from... Uh, his uh, his superhero identity, um, and really can't handle it not being a secret, and it really defines him. Yeah, I think later on there's a moment he, he was like, you know, I was wearing the mask, but I was I was still Kovacs. It wasn't until a certain point that he you know he walked in the door and he walked out. He was Rorschach, but that's later in the story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Doctor Manhattan. The first note is large blue naked man. <laughs> I think seeing him in that first panel just shows you that uh, he's going to be a little bit larger than life, uh, figuratively also. Uh, throughout the rest of the story. He's a lot different than any of the other uh, superhero characters. Right. 
what great panels there on 20 to the right, you know, just dwarfing everybody. You know, you get a shot of his calves only, you know, definitely larger than life. Yeah. Well, then the other thing, again, we get to the to the whole adult, you know, the Watchmen, you know, is you one of the first, you know, quote, adult comics are kind of ushered this area in with the Dark Knight. And again, here you are seeing, you know, basically what's a naked man, you know, on panel, you know, which is, you know, something that, you know, in mainstream comics, for the most part, you just really didn't see. Um, that page is owned by a guy by the name of uh, Justin uh, Justin Hutchinson on Comic Art Fans. We'll put a link up on the forum thread, but um, this page is really something to see in just the inks. It's it's pretty amazing. I can imagine. So you were going to say it was owned by Brian Chrisman. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to say it was owned by Adam Umack. We're doing Watchmen, not 52. Ooh, too rich for my blood. <laughs> not bad. Um. Just as a note here, um, the, an average Watchmen page um, soul sells or goes currently now, um, just as kind of a multi-panel page, for about $6,000. Oh. Now, wow. that, that number is on the small end of things because there are panels with, um, <clears throat> like, Lori and Dan when they're out of character, or excuse me, out of costume. Um, that's about an average price. Now, about a month ago on eBay... There was a page um, when Doctor Manhattan's on Mars, and that auction started at forty-four thousand. Unreal! For wow. one, oh, for unbelievable! For one page, and from what I've been um, digging up as far as the original art goes, um, to see where you know these things are some twenty years later, is Watchmen pages, Dark Knight Returns pages, and Batman Year One, as well as any pages from the Frank Miller Daredevil run are pretty much the grails of the 80s. I wonder what, well, the, uh, what the increase in value over the last, you know, well, especially Watchmen. I mean, I wonder what, you know, those Watchmen pages were going for even a year ago. And as opposed, and then contrast that to a year from now, what they'll go for. Too rich for my blood. It's an investment. Well, it should make Brian feel better about 50, 52 pages in 20 years. It might be, uh, be, might be able to pay for them. <laughs> yeah, it's I out of my league post, for sure. I think they'll put him in his coffin with him when he, when he goes. Yeah. It's going to be a big coffin. <laughs> um, but, the, the, you know, as we talk about Dr. Manhattan and and kind of wandering around, it, it's kind of funny that he's, he, for the most part, he's just unconcerned with going on a run, you know, give his little, you know, two cents and chime in here and there, but for the most part, he could care less, you know, what's going on. You know, the only reason he kind of intervenes um, into getting rid of Rorschach is because he upsets, uh, you know, Lori, and, and she, she wants him gone. Again, it's really genius how Moore uses this issue to set everything up. We get a little taste of each character, and here's our taste of Dr. Manhattan. He's aloof, he's disaffected, he's disconnected from the rest of humanity, and uh, it just seems like he could really care less about anything else going on other than his own scientific, you know, godly pursuits or what have you. You definitely see that in Chapter 3. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even uh, to jump ahead, I guess, one page to 23... 
you know, you just met Dr. Manhattan. He's this huge blue thing. We really have no idea yet. And you, <laughs> and uh, she's making the phone call to uh, have dinner with the, the name is uh, escaping me, Dan. She's making the call to have dinner with Dan, and you could, all, your thoughts immediately go to, oh no, he he's not paying attention to her. He he doesn't care. You know, it's 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 so well written that you're concerned about his relationship. The second page that you know this giant blue man. <laughs> I think he operates like Rorschach too, because um, if you take Doctor Manhattan out of that scientific environment. Right now in the story, he can't exist. And if you put Rorschach in an environment that's not weird, creepy, and in a power position, he can't exist either. Or function, at least. And, they, you know, definitely, you can, you know, the whole fish out of water thing, you know, definitely where Rorschach is in environments that are so foreign to his own, you can definitely tell he's he, he, he doesn't know how to respond or react or, you know, definitely feels uncomfortable you're looking at like the two opposite ends of the spectrum here's one man who's all of his power is self-actualized all of his power is pretty much him and his uh, point of view on the world and then you have another man with you know godlike power at his fingertips it's almost like they're opposite ends of the spectrum did anybody go on to page 23 at the very end the, the last panel where he you know they kind of close up on Dr. Manhattan um, and you see Lori in the background and she's kind of setting this um, meeting up with, with Dan. Did anybody else kind of see it, or maybe I'm just reading into it because I know what's coming, like a smile on his face, almost like, like yeah, and, and we'll, you know, as, as it goes on and we find out more about his powers, but almost like he, he, did, he, he agreed to it and he knows what's going on because he knows what's coming. Yeah, I saw, I saw the smile and like, I immediately saw that. that see, moment. I took it yeah, I definitely see the smile, and again, we didn't know his powers yet, but if you read two panels ahead of that, you know, you read how he's he's close to locating a Gluino. Is that how you say that, Adam? Gluino? I don't um, know, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I took it as, you know, he's just so happy with himself over this other stuff that he's just totally ignoring that his woman is setting up a date with somebody else. You know, like, he's just clueless. He's happy in his genius work, and he's not seeing what's right in front of him. I think he always, I, I took it as he's, he's so involved with his work and he understands how important it is. He's almost happy for her that, you know, she, he, he's going to let her go and be able to do what she needs to do. Right. I took it as almost knowing what, how this whole story ends and that, and this is obviously second read through, but... Manhattan, because he kind of exists in all different time periods at the same time, he, it's almost like he he knows that Laurie meeting up with Dan needs to happen in order for to, to for things to turn out the way they do, and so he kind of sees this as the as the moment that makes this happen. Like, okay, this is what's going to make it so that Laurie and Dan get together and have you know their adventure and and how things you know how all the pieces start to come together later on because he knows what's going to happen already and so this is kind of like his his okay it's here it starts. 
Well, Dr. Manhattan's uh, chapter uh, later on in the, in the series where they kind of explain his origin and where he comes from, it's pretty much in the narrative style of like Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that book or not. Yep. But uh, in, it, in it, the main character, uh, Billy Pilgrim, becomes unstuck in time. And so the story is told anti-chronologically. It's told in bits and pieces out of time order. And that's kind of the way um, Dr. Manhattan's uh, chapter is told in Watchmen, too. So he's got, as it gets more and more godlike, you know, it could be that time has less and less meaning for him. And maybe he sees it all as you know, one big moment or one big string of events rather than moment by moment like we do. Plus, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, Jim, is all about um, aliens, too, from Tralfalmador in the Vonnegut universe as well. Right. And, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you know, Dr. Manhattan is not a human anymore. Kind of has uh, that uh, Martian Manhunter syndrome to some degree. Yeah, yeah and, I mean, and he knows it. You know, he's not, he's not one of those, you know, that has godlike powers and feels like, oh, you know, I'm I'm not a god. I get the impression that he has godlike powers, knows he's he's basically a god, and you know doesn't really seem too concerned about one way or the other. He just you know so, it is what it is, and he can do what he can do. Right. It's almost like he's uh, he's almost like slowly forgetting what it's like to be a human. So going on to page twenty four again, we see that kind of the whole. Um, who watches the Watchmen again? That snippet where we don't get the whole thing, you know, on the on the on the right hand side of the first panel, um, and then and then you get the interesting middle three panels where you know he's kind of looking up at the woman in the window, you know, where she's she's obviously has no clothes on, she's kind of closing the the, the 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 drapes, and then you know, man comes up and they start to embrace, and he, he just. You know, walks on like it. You know, it, it. And again, we find out later on, you know, why he has issues with, um, you know, with that whole thing. But, but again, his uncomfortableness around, um, you know, human interaction and you know, kind of normal. You know, what what normal people engage in. Plus, he kind of puts his uh, like extreme view out there in the next to the last panel where he says, because there is good and there is evil, and evil must be punished, even in the face of Armageddon, I shall not compromise. And we get Richard Nixon, four more years. Four more years. Another little clue into the universe. Yeah, at first I didn't really think too much of that, because I, cause the, the, the poster itself was kind of torn and tattered. Um, so I just, I just thought it was just kind of left over from, you know, from, you know, 10 years, well, 15 years, four old, years earlier. And earlier there's a picture of, uh, they're talking about the picture of, uh, the comedian with vice president Ford, not president Ford or former president Ford. Do you think if they were keeping with the timeline, it would be referring to Reagan, but it's almost as if it's still, if it's like 1985 or 86, but it's like the president's like 20 years or 10 or 15 years out of place. I believe it has even something. Then, Go ahead. I was going to say, even then, it didn't really kind of sit funny with me because I just assumed, oh, that was an old picture and that it was just taken. Yeah. You know, like I said, at the time of reading it, it I didn't think nothing, anything of it because I just figured, okay, it's 1986, 85, and, you know, so this this was just taken in, you know, 1973 or, you know. Well, I, I kind of thought that as well when I first read, but then I'm like, well, well, why wouldn't they still have referred to him as President Ford? 
True, true. Good point. I believe I read that it's uh, actually starting to be his fifth term in office and has a lot to do with uh, how Vietnam was handled differently and uh, some things that uh, the comedian's involved in uh, with Watergate. So the Constitution's been changed in this timeline as well? Yes, it has. (laughs) (laughs) I forget where – I don't know if I saved that line. I was looking at that today. I don't think I saved it. Uh, but, yeah, after uh, he he becomes kind of a national hero uh, with Vietnam, and uh, that allows him to uh, change the Constitution to allow him to stay in office indefinitely. And then later on at some point, I don't, I don't remember exactly where there's, there's like an allusion to the fact that, that basically um, Woodward and Bernstein were killed and that... You know, basically, the, the, I guess the, the inference, and I guess we'll get to it later on. Right. I don't know exactly where it is, but that you know, maybe the, even the comedian had something to do with that. That basically they were going to go public and Watergate. The Watergate never would have happened without them. Yeah, right. that he kind of snuffed them out, and you know, Watergate was kept quiet, and therefore, you know, things were allowed to kind of continue on that path as well. Then going page. To- I'm sorry. No, go ahead, John. Uh, on page 25 in the middle panel, th- this, I'll, I'll let Adam tell me that I'm ridiculous, but it's getting late and I'm feeling kind of silly. <laughs> the, the lady in the corner, you, you have that shot of them, um, they're eating dinner. And in the corner, there's just like half a face. Um, does that look like some kind of Egyptian makeup on her eye? Is that like a Ozymandias clue? That she's got a. You guys see the eye that I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a distinct like makeup style on the face, right? It's not just shadowing or. No, 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 no. I, I think that is. Is makeup. That's interesting to me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no go, Jim, ahead. go ahead. I don't, I don't know. I don't I know what it saying. is. I was just gonna say that in other parts of the uh, the comic, they show like feed industries making. Um, uh, perfume and cologne and things like that. I don't think it would be too far online if they, they would, uh, you know, have that kind of makeup as well. Right, and even the now that I'm looking at it, the other lady has that um, jewelry around her upper arm that's kind of like a snake. Right. That's another oh, yeah. Egyptian looking, you know, piece. Yes, I'm yeah. yeah. It's almost like Bite is, Bite is getting so big that he's, you know, influencing everything. Right, and then the other the other thing to notice too, and I didn't notice. I don't know why I didn't notice it the, the first time I read it, but the second time I read it, and on that same panel, you see the two guys. Yeah, and one's got his 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 arm around the other guy's shoulder, and they're holding hands, and you know, right. again that you know in this time period, you know, I guess today, you know, two thousand eight, if if you went into a restaurant and saw that, it it wouldn't throw you. You know, you'd be like, okay, you know, you you've seen that, but. In the early '80s, that you know, I guess that that was still kind of not in the forefront, so to speak. Um, and the fact that you know the relationship with two men openly in a restaurant like that in this timeline again shows you that you know, this timeline is a little different than than ours, where things are you know, certain things are a little more accepted and 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 open than than they are for us. 
That's funny considering um, the position of power that Nixon's currently in with, with the story, though, don't you think? Absolutely. Because by the book, on these on this extreme conservative end that Rorschach's on, these are the people that are causing, contributing to, and ultimately will be the victim of this purge, for lack of a better word, that Rorschach's talking about. And Dan and Lori are right there with them. Yeah, I thought the, the same thing too with a with a with a prolonged, um, you know, staunchly conservative administration. It's kind of a weird juxtaposition to have these two people, you know, displayed that way. Plus, if you look at the panel, who orders a turkey when they go out to eat? I mean, a whole turkey. <laughs> she does. With the drumsticks well, on the same side. Jim, is that on the menu at your restaurant? An entire uh, turkey. Not a whole turkey now. That's a John Madden turducken from the Pro Bowl or something. <laughs> yeah, it's got four legs. Be at the Gunga Diner. My favorite thing about this page is that everything they say is the opposite of what is uh, really going on. Like when Dan is like, how is everything with you and John? Oh, couldn't be better. you know. And she talks about her costume. And the neckline down to my navel, how dreadful. Oh, yeah, that was dreadful. You know? <laughs> the Keen Act was the best thing that ever happened to us. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> You know that like everything they say is the opposite of what they mean. Yeah. Especially in the last panel where you see, you know, again, you see that, you know, driver just, just looking down, the somber look in his face, like, you know, holding that, that smiley face in his hand, you know, like, I want to do something about it. You know, secretly he wants to do something about it. He wants to be out there with Rorschach kind of pounding the pavement, you know, getting to the bottom of it, but... You know. I think she does too. She's kind of. It's almost like she's talking herself out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Remember that costume? Oh, how dreadful! You know, it's almost like she's trying to tell herself, "Yeah, I don't really miss it," but actually, you know, she's looking off wistfully as if you know, she'd go out and do it again in a minute. And of course, the last page, where again, you know, kind of like I mentioned in the beginning, it's it's a it's a complete, you know, analog to page one where. The panel layout is the same. The perspectives are the same. Um, you know, almost it, it's in a in a different setting. Almost everything is identical to to that to that first page. Right. You know, I just noticed that he cleaned the button too. I didn't realize that at first. Yeah, yeah. And then we get, of course, the 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 quote, the ending quote from the Bob Dylan song that that starts the the title to the chapter. Nobody has chapter one. That, that's it. Did I didn't really have a whole lot on the prose pages um, for this. I mean, for the most part, I mean, you know, I mean, I think it's good to read because it's it's you know kind of a history. You know, it's it's kind of well, it actually is excerpts from you know Hollis Mason's book. So if you know if in this world Hollis Mason really wrote a book called Under the Hood, this is this is exactly how it would read. Right. Which is kind of interesting because it gives you more insight into, you know, how a normal, you know, person decides to to become a masked um, hero, and um, you know, you get more background on, you know, the Minuteman and some of these other, um, the Minuteman and some of the other characters that that come along, um, and even makes allusions to, you know, like Lamont Cranston and Clark Kent and you know other things. So it, it's almost like in this world, the Shadow and Superman. You know, in action comics were a real thing, but with the advent of 
real heroes, it, they, they pretty much became irrelevant real quick and, you know, out of fashion. I don't know if anybody else have any any thoughts on the on the on the prose stuff. The first part of the prose piece is brutal about the the guy uh, having uh, being uh, cheated on, yeah. uh, Mo or whatever. Uh huh. Brutal. Mo Vernon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read I read the prose piece for the first time today <laughs> when I reread chapter one. I promised myself this time I was going to take my time and read the prose and make sure I paid attention to the Black Freighter when that pops up. Um, so I read through it for the first time. And I wasn't, you know, it was, again, it's nice backstory, and I'm sure they'll build on this. It, it didn't seem like it was necessary, but it definitely added to fleshing out characters. And Well, we didn't see that much of the original Night Owl, Night, Night Owl in, in this chapter, and that's really where this prose piece was from. So I really didn't see the relevance to what I had just read. But as you said, I'm looking forward to see if it does come back to us. I think it does help, though, to uh, flush out, I mean, really with Crane in one universe and, and one uh, maxi-series, uh, it really uh, allows them to flush out the universe. And that's what I think that the whole first uh, book or is really doing is, is just uh, having a start to the universe. So that gives it a little bit more back history, definitely. Um, and then also uh, giving uh, information to why someone would uh, start to become a hero back in the beginning. Definitely. So I guess that's that's the the issue itself. So the the next topic I had listed was the art. Um, so I know we've kind of talked about symbolism and you know the way that certain things are are done. Um, but you know, my my impression of the art um, overall is it kind of it you know everything kind of is very uniform and and you know there's there's a lot of the you know three by three grid on the panels on all the pages and even if if a if a page doesn't have nine um, you know panels on it then you, you know it's two it's two panels combined to form one panel but it still occupies the same amount of space um, or you know three panels at the bottom pushed together. So everything still kind of keeps this very clean, you know, three by three grid style, um, art, you know, just, you know, kind of, you know, kind of harkens back to the, to the golden age, silver age, you know, style where, you know, you didn't have big, you know, splash pages and double page spreads and all yeah. kinds of stuff like that. Um, yeah, you stay, then, stay within your borders. Don't, don't escape the margin. Don't go into the gutter. Yeah. It's very clean. You're right. Yeah, and you know, just the the pencils themselves. I mean, everything is very it's very clean, and you know, it's very precise. Um, same thing with the coloring. It's not you know a lot of primary colors, not a lot of you know you know fancy you know gradations and and things like that done. Just very clean, simple. Um, gets the point across. So I'm definitely no uh, connoisseur with art. So um, that, that that's about all I have to add to that. The, co- the colors, Russell, are really uh, I think are really saturated. Um, the, the at least on the, on the recoloring from that that Higgins did, uh, everything is just extremely extremely saturated. Um, and I would also add that the as far as the sequentials are told um, by the panels, I think that there's enough um, deviations into what is art. Like uh, we were talking about the 
I don't know if it's experimental in 1986, but the inclusion of the comedian's fall in that single, more or less single shot that Jim talked about. And I think there's enough kind of uh, art moments in here that you can say that that's not just a panel. Like when Rorschach's um, walking um, past on page 24, you know, that's definitely an art spread. It's not just storytelling. And I, I realize that each panel individually is art, and they all make up art on a page. But I think that Gibbons, excuse me, Gibbons took enough initiative with um, matching the colors and making them uniform with, like I said, these, these small deviations throughout the book to keep the creation aspect and the sequential aspect not only in check with each other but still moving and feeding off of each other. And I would kill anyone to have a page. <laughs> You're all on notice. Oh, man. You better bring a friend. The coolest thing I could probably say about the art is that, that clean style that uh, you guys were just talking about. I think it's really important. I mean, ultimately, Watchmen is a comic book about comic book heroes. And I think that style is so important for for that kind of thing to get across. If they'd gone with someone more abstract like Kevin O'Neill or, or you know Chris Bocciolo or someone like that, I think it would have lost a lot of its impact. But now, as far as you definitely you know in this kind of a story, you don't want um, you know to feel like you have to to you know, focus just to just to figure out what's going on. I mean, you want, you know, because the, the story is so uh, so deep and so so thick that you definitely, you know, want to make sure that uh, you don't lose focus of that. Right. That's a good point. Besides uh, The Dark Knight Returns, uh, at this time, was there anything that was quite this gritty? Uh, you know, Year like, one, which is kind of—I mean, I guess Batman Year One, which is kind of—you know—again Frank Miller, um, similar to that. Miracle Man, the Alan Moore original Miracle Man, I would have to say was a contemporary piece. It was as gritty, if not more so. Well, I mean, I guess when did when did Alan Moore do Swamp Thing? Was that was it pretty close to this, or was it after this? I think that was before this earlier eighties. It, it was before. That was where he really made his name in American comics. And it was about the same time he started to get big with Swamp Thing that Eclipse came uh, and started printing uh, Miracle Man here in America from the uh, Warrior magazine where it originally appeared in uh, in England. It's also right. uh, the original home of V for Vendetta. It was originally in uh, Warrior, which was a, a compilation a comics magazine from England. But this is when we really, I mean, the, 86 is when the comic fans were, you know, yes, finally, we have we have Frank Miller, we have Alan Moore, we have these, we're finally going to be taken seriously, you know, comics will finally be everywhere they should be, and no one will make fun of me for reading them on the bus on the way to school, you know. But, uh, I don't know, I think we're just maybe getting to that now. It just seems yeah, that. Unfortunately, we had that period called the 90s that <laughs> kind of, Right. Set us back. Forgot about that. Yeah, so it was August of '85 was his first Swamp Thing story. So yeah, definitely before this. 
he's uh, really done a good job of dis- distancing himself from Watchmen since then, though. I think he's done a good job of dis- distancing himself from everything. Kind of Sounder-esque, don't you think, Jim? Yeah, it was. there was an interesting thing on the forums the other day about whether Alan Moore was a hypocrite because he, um, it, you know, it's totally hands-off on all the adaptations of his work, and yet most of the works that he is famous, most famous for were in themselves adaptations, including Watchmen. So it was kind of interesting. That I forget who wrote the article, but it should still be on the forum somewhere about um, whether Alan Moore is, in, in fact, uh, hypocritical because of that. I don't know what I guess V for Vendetta that that was kind of the nail that you know nail in the coffin as far as you know him being involved or wanting any association at all with his works but um, I know League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that was that was kind of that definitely put him over the top and then what about From Hell yeah (laughs) not to not to get too far into the movie here but do you do you think as far as the movie goes do you think he'll actually get any sort of nod or mention, or do you think they'll respect his wishes and not even put his name on it? So do you think they're, they're not going to touch it? They're not going to. No way. If, yeah, if, Snyder if, said that he wants to respect Alan Moore's wishes as much as possible. I think it's going to be just like uh, V for Vendetta was, where there's just um, David Lloyd's uh, names on the was on the credits, but not Alan Moore's. So, so this will be just Watchmen it, based on the graphic novel by Dave Gibbons. <laughs> I guess, but yeah. you know, you know, uh, Alan <laughs> for Moore Dave. <laughs> Yeah, hey, but uh, you're yeah. sure, I'm sure that Alan will be cashing quite a few royalty checks from all the sales, from all the trade paperbacks and hardbacks and whatnot. So. Now I heard, I heard something as far as the movie. The what? <laughs> as far as of course, the it's been it, it's been a few years that he, like literally any royalty checks at all, he wants he he's like wanting them to go to somebody else, like. To basically send them to, and I guess in the case of Watchmen, send them to Dave Gibbons or send them to, you know, to whoever that he ba- he doesn't even want any monetary gain out of it at all. I mean, that was just, uh, and like I said, I don't remember where it was I read that, but I'd swear that I read that somewhere. I think you're right as far as the royalties from the movie are concerned, but I, I mean, he's going to end up making royalties off the written work that he's already written anyway. So. Nine hundred thousand oh, yeah, books, yeah. he's going to get something. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's yeah, no, the change yeah. From that. Yeah, this is strictly as relates to motion picture, like not not the written stuff. And I want to say that even like for V for Vendetta, or was it Lee Extraordinary Gentleman? He even wanted the royalties sent to uh, uh, Neil Gaiman because I guess Neil Gaiman is trying to fight for the whole rights to Miracle Man to try and get it to to bring it back. So he's in this huge um, royalty fighter. He was in a, in a and then what was the other fight that he was in with? McFarlane over his battle with, you know, characters that he created, you know, when he did Spawn, and I don't know, it's all kind of tied into where he's basically trying to help Game and get the rights to Miracle Man. I think McFarlane owns uh, part of the rights to Miracle Man too. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, exactly. But there's a, it's a huge dispute. That, that's why it's. I think in when not to get too far off topic, topic, but when Gaiman wrote 1602 for Marvel, I think he even put you know, dedicated to Todd McFarlane or something, because, you know, the, the sole purpose of him coming back to do 1602 was to, um, you know, gin up some cash so he could fight McFarlane over right issues. <laughs> Interesting. Anyway, so what else about the, what else about the art? Anybody else have any, any add? 
just, I'm just looking at all the expressions. The expressions are like dead on from uh, Dr. Manhattan's half smile that we caught. And, uh, you know, you could, you could tell what everybody's feeling on in, in every picture. I definitely noticed that more in this than I have in comics in general. I mean, to me, it just seems like the, the facial expressions really stood out. And there's a lot of places where the expressions kind of alter. You'd see somebody with a happy expression in one panel, sad expression in another panel, and then almost like a smiling expression again in the third panel. Like a lot of this whole kind of up and down that, that definitely, you know, that's only a lot of facial expression going on. Well, I don't think any of them, you know, none of them in this chapter at least really have any masks aside from Rorschach. And I think that his his narration is so dead on that you don't need to see his face to know what he might be gesturing. Well, there's, there's times reading this where I'm, I'm convinced I could tell exactly what face he's making just based on the way that the, the, you know, the impressions on the mask are drawn, the way his head is positioned. You know, and all his other body language, it's it's amazing that even even to draw somebody with a mask on covering his entire face, that you have a pretty good indication of, you know, what he's thinking and how he's feeling and what he's showing. Plus, you have that running internal dialogue at all times. Yep. So what about the writing? I think that as far as the writing is concerned, this issue is a, a textbook example of how to set up uh, you know, for a story setup. Um, Rorschach, like I said earlier, he goes, he, you meet all the main characters in the story. You kind of get an idea of where they are, where they're coming from. You uh, All through Rorschach's uh, investigation. Plus you get that the great narration from Rorschach. And he's, you know, your eyes and ears as you meet these people. So, I totally agree. It, it it's the setup, but it's done correctly. It's the setup that moves forward. You exactly. know, Rorsch- it makes sense unto itself, too. Right, which is something that, you know, setup issues recently have just been brutal. You know, the first issue of these events, and everybody ends up on the message board saying it, nothing happened, it didn't go anywhere. You know, this is a first issue that went somewhere. And I think where it ends up, too, is completely completely out of this world because it's not a murder mystery not not in the end at least you know that that he's just dangling the carrot at this point you know the, the death of the comedian as far as investigating it that's just the uh that's just the uh gateway into the uh larger issues problems world whatever you want to call it Yeah, because right. definitely by the by the end of it, you you know you you're you're wanting to know so much more. You get all these little hints and teases as to these characters and that you know what their life is like now, what their life was like, um, and you know what's going on in this world that makes it different. You know, you can you can tell right away, even though you don't know a whole lot, that there's something not right about this world. Like there's something that that it doesn't match up to to the world we live in, and and you know, kind of setting it up that. You know, you want to know more. It's funny thinking about uh, how you started off that saying that the first page is the same as the last page. 
So it's the setup story that went somewhere but ends up back where it started. <laughs> yeah, the whole um, the whole concept of, of height too is all through it. I mean, the first and last pages uh, when Rorschach is doing his, his Don monologue, he's up on the rooftops. When he's talking to Adrian Feed, he's up in the penthouse. Um, when he walks in to see Doctor Manhattan, Doctor Manhattan is fifty feet tall and towering over him. So I, the whole concept, I mean, visually all through the story, uh, repeats as well. I'm curious to know how much of that is more and how much of that is Gibbons. You know, like truly how how much instruction did Moore give to Gibbons and how much of it did Gibbons just take what Moore had done and 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 frame that? Because so much of the storytelling in this is visual. Um, well, from seeing Alan Moore's uh, unedited un, uh, scripts, online from other projects and whatnot. I would imagine a lot of it um, might have been delineated in the script, but then implemented by Gibbons. That would be my guess. Because Alan Moore, I mean, if you ever see any of his scripts, they're just pretty much like one big paragraph, uh, stream of conscious. Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I saw read something online, The Twilight of the Superheroes, which I guess was a pitch that he made to DC back in the 80s for a company-wide crossover. And it's basically uh, five, a five-page-long paragraph explaining his ideas. You know? yeah. and I guess that's yeah, fairly read, typical for his scripts. Yeah, I dug that up a couple weeks ago and read it. It was pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anybody yeah. have anything else? Let's talk bed. Yeah. yeah. It's almost time for Venture Brothers. <laughs> I've still got an hour uh, hour behind you guys, so I got uh, it's, it's not as late as it for me as it is for you. <laughs> Gets late early out here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, well, I guess that, that wraps up issue one. And I guess in, uh, in two weeks we'll take a stab at issue two. Mm-hmm.